Chapter 6 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Heather Jane Hogan. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 2. Paris and Prison by Giacomo Casanova. Translated by Arthur Machen. Episode 6. My Apprenticeship in Paris, Portraits, Oddities, All Sorts of Things. Chapter 6, Part 1. To celebrate the arrival of her son, Sylvia gave a splendid supper to which she had invited all her relatives, and it was a good opportunity for me to make their acquaintance. Valetti's father, who had just recovered from a long illness, was not with us but we had his father's sister, who was older than Mario. She was known, under her theatrical name of Flaminia, in the literary world by several translations, but I had a great wish to make her acquaintance less on that account than in consequence of the story, known throughout Italy, of the stay that the three literary men of great fame had made in Paris. Those three literati were the Marquis Maffi, the Abbe Conti and Pierre-Jacques Martelli, who became enemies, according to public rumor, owing to the belief entertained by each of them that he possessed the favors of the actress, and, being men of learning, they fought with the pen. Martelli composed a satire against Maffi, in which he designated him by the anagram of Femia. I had been announced to Flaminia as a candidate for literary fame, and she thought she honored me by addressing me at all, but she was wrong, for she displeased me greatly by her face, her manners, her style, even by the sound of her voice. Without saying it positively, she made me understand that, being herself an illustrious member of the Republic of Letters, she was well aware that she was speaking to an insect." She seemed as if she wanted to dictate to everybody around her, and she very likely thought that she had the right to do so at the age of sixty, particularly towards a young novice of only twenty-five years old, who had not yet contributed anything to the literary treasury. In order to please her, I spoke to her of the Abbey Conti, and I had occasion to quote two lines of that profound writer. Madame corrected me with a patronizing air for my pronunciation of the word skevra, which means divided, saying that it ought to be pronounced skiora, and she added that I ought to be very glad to have learned so much on the first day of my arrival in Paris, telling me that it would be an important day in my life. Madame, I came here to learn, and not to unlearn, you will kindly allow me to tell you that the pronunciation of that word skevra with a v and not skiora with a u because it is a contraction of scavera it remains to be seen which of us is wrong you madam according to arisodo who makes skevra rhyme with persevra and the rhyme would be false with secura which is not an italian word she would have kept up the discussion, but her husband, a man of eighty years of age, told her that she was wrong. She held her tongue, but from that time she told everybody that I was an impostor. Her husband, Louis Riccoboni, better known as Lelio, 
was the same who had brought the Italian company to Paris in 1716 and placed it at the service of the regent. He was a man of great merit. He had been very handsome and justly enjoyed the esteem of the public, in consequence not only of his talent, but also of the purity of his life. During supper my principal occupation was to study Sylvia, who then enjoyed the greatest reputation, and I judged her to even be above it. She was then about fifty years old, her figure was elegant, her air noble, her manners graceful and easy. She was affable, witty, kind to everybody, simple and unpretending. Her face was an enigma, for it inspired every one with the warmest sympathy, and yet, if you examined it attentively, there was not one beautiful feature. She could not be called handsome, but no one could have thought her ugly. Yet she was not one of those women who are neither handsome nor ugly, for she possessed a certain something which struck one at first sight and captivated the interest. Then what was she? Beautiful, certainly, but owing to charms unknown to all those who, not being attracted towards her by an irresistible feeling which compelled them to love her, had not the courage to study her or the constancy to obtain a thorough knowledge of her. Sylvia was the adoration of France, and her talent was the real support of all the comedies which the greatest authors wrote for her, especially of the plays of Marivaux, for without her, his comedies would never have gone to posterity. Never was an actress found who could replace her, and to find one, it would be necessary that she should unite herself in all the perfections which Sylvia possessed for the difficult profession of the stage. Action, voice, intelligence, wit, countenance, manners, and a deep knowledge of the human heart. In Sylvia, every quality was from nature and the art which gave the last touch of perfection to her qualities was never seen. To the qualities which I have just mentioned, Sylvia added another, which surrounded her with a brilliant halo, and the absence of which would not have prevented her from being the shining star of the stage. She led a virtuous life. She had been anxious to have friends, but she had dismissed all lovers, refusing to avail herself of a privilege which she could easily have enjoyed, but which would have rendered her contemptible in her own estimation. The irreproachable conduct obtained for her a reputation of respectability which, at her age, would have been held as ridiculous and even insulting by any other woman belonging to the same profession, and many ladies of the highest rank honored her with her friendship, even more than with their patronage. Never did the capricious audience of a Parisian pit dare to hiss Sylvia, not even in her performance of characters which the public disliked, and it was the general opinion that she was in every way above her profession. Sylvia did not think that her good conduct was a merit, for she knew that she was virtuous only because her self-love compelled her to be so, and she never exhibited any pride or assumed any superiority towards her theatrical sisters, although satisfied to shine by their talent or their beauty, 
they cared little about rendering themselves conspicuous by their virtue. Sylvia loved them all, and they all loved her. She always was the first to praise openly and with good faith the talent of her rivals. But she lost nothing by it, because being their superior in talent and enjoying a spotless reputation, her rivals could not rise above her. Nature deprived that charming woman of ten years of life. She became consumptive at the age of sixty, ten years after I had made her acquaintance. The climate of Paris often proves fatal to our Italian actresses. Two years before her death, I saw her perform the character of Marianne in the comedy of Marivaux, and in spite of her age and declining health, the illusion was complete. She died in my presence, holding her daughter in her arms, and she was giving her the advice of a tender mother five minutes before she breathed her last. She was honorably buried in the church of St. Sauveur, without the slightest opposition from the venerable priest who, far from sharing the anti-Christian intolerancy of the clergy in general, said that her profession as an actress had not hindered her from being a good Christian, and that the earth was a common mother of all human beings, as Jesus Christ had been the Savior of all mankind. You will forgive me, dear reader, if I have made you attend the funeral of Sylvia ten years before her death, Believe me, I have no intention of performing a miracle. You may console yourself with the idea that I shall spare you that unpleasant task when poor Sylvia dies. Her only daughter, the object of her adoration, was seated next to her at the supper table. She was then only nine years old, and being entirely taken up by her mother, I paid no attention to her. My interest in her was to come. After supper, which was protracted to a late hour, I repaired to the house of Madame Quinson, my landlady, where I found myself very comfortable. When I woke in the morning, the said Madame Quinson came to my room to tell me that a servant was outside and wished to offer me his services. I asked her to send him in, and I saw a man of very small stature. That did not please me, and I told him so. My small stature, your honor, will be a guarantee that I shall never borrow your clothes to go to some amorous rendezvous. Your name? Any name you please. What do you mean? I want the name by which you are known. I have none. Every master I serve calls me according to his fancy, and I have served more than fifty in my life. You may call me what you like. But you must have a family name. I never had any family. I had a name, I believe, in my young days, but I have forgotten it since I have been in service. My name has changed with every new master. Well, I shall call you Esprit. You do me a great honor. Here. Go and get me change for a louis. I have it, sir. I see you are rich. At your service, sir. Where can I inquire about you? At the agency for servants. Madame Quinson, besides, can answer your inquiries. Everybody in Paris knows me. That is enough. I shall give you thirty sous a day. 
You must find your own clothes. You will sleep where you like, and you must be here at seven o'clock every morning. Belletti called on me and entreated me to take my meals every day at his house. After his visit, I told Esprit to take me to the Palais Royal, and I left him at the gates. I felt the greatest curiosity about that renowned garden, and at first I examined everything. I see a rather fine garden, walks lined with big trees, fountains, high houses all round the garden, a great many men and women walking about, benches here and there, forming shops for the sale of newspapers, perfumes, toothpicks, and other trifles. I see a quantity of chairs for hire at the rate of one sou, men reading the newspaper under the shade of the trees, girls and men breakfasting either alone or in company, waiters who were rapidly going up and down a narrow staircase hidden under the foliage. I sit down at a small table. A waiter comes immediately to inquire my wishes. I ask for some chocolate made with water. He brings me some, but very bad, although served in a splendid silver gilt cup. I tell him to give me some coffee, if it is good. Excellent! I made it myself yesterday. Yesterday? I do not want it. The milk is very good. Milk. I never drink any. Make me a cup of fresh coffee without milk. Without milk? Well, sir, we never make coffee but in the afternoon. Would you like a good Bavaros or a decanter of Orgeat? Yes, give me the Orgeat. I find that beverage delicious and make my mind up to have it daily for my breakfast. I inquire from the waiter whether there is any news. He answers that the Dauphin has delivered of a prince. An abbey seated at a table close by says to him, You are mad. She has given birth to a princess. A third man comes forward and exclaims, I have just returned from Versailles, and the Dauphin has not been delivered either of a prince or of a princess. Then, turning towards me, he says that I look like a foreigner, and when I say that I am an Italian, he begins to speak to me of the court, the city, of the theatres, and at last he offers to accompany me everywhere. I thank him and take my leave. The abbey rises at the same time, walks with me, and tells me the names of all the women we meet in the garden. A young man comes up to him, they embrace one another, and the abbey presents him to me as a learned Italian scholar. I address him in Italian, and he answers very wittily, but his way of speaking makes me smile, and I tell him why. He expressed himself exactly in the style of Boccaccio. My remark pleases him, but I soon prove to him that it is not the right way to speak, however perfect may have been the language of that ancient writer. In less than a quarter of an hour we are excellent friends, for we find our tastes are the same. My new friend was a poet, as I was. He was an admirer of Italian literature, while I admired the French. We exchanged addresses and promised to see one another very often. I see a crowd in one corner of the garden, everybody standing still and looking up. I inquire from my friend whether there is anything wonderful going on. These persons are watching the meridian. Everyone holds his watch in his hand in order to regulate it exactly at noon. Is there not a meridian everywhere? 
Yes, but the meridian of the Palais Royal is the most exact. I laugh heartily. Why do you laugh? Because it is impossible for all meridians not to be the same. That is true, Badogri. My friend looks at me for a moment, then he laughs likewise, and supplies me with ample food to ridicule the worthy Parisians. We leave the Palais Royal through the main gate, and I observe another crowd of people before a shop, on the signboard of which I read, At the Sign of the Civet Cat. What is the matter here? Now indeed you are going to laugh. All these honest persons are waiting their turn to get their snuff boxes filled. Is there no other dealer in snuff? It is sold everywhere, but for the last three weeks nobody will use any snuff but that sold at the Civet Cat. Is it better than anywhere else? Perhaps it is not as good. But since it has been brought into fashion by the Duchess de Chartres, nobody will have any other. But how did she manage to render it so fashionable? Simply by stopping her carriage two or three times before the shop to have her snuff box filled, and by saying aloud to the young girl who handed back the box that her snuff was the very best in Paris. The Badolds, who never fail to congregate near the carriage of princes, no matter if they have seen them a hundred times or if they know them to be as ugly as monkeys, repeated the words of the Duchess everywhere. And that was enough to send here all the snuff-takers of the capital in a hurry. This woman will make a fortune, for she sells at least one hundred crowns worth of snuff every day. Very likely the Duchess has no idea of the good she has done. Quite the reverse, for it was a cunning artifice on her part. The Duchess, feeling interested in the newly married young woman and wishing to serve her in a delicate manner, thought of that expedient, which has met with complete success. You cannot imagine how kind Parisians are. You are now in the only country in the world where wit can make a fortune by selling either a genuine or a false article. In the first case, it receives the welcome of intelligent and talented people. And in the second, fools are always ready to reward it. For silliness is truly a characteristic of the people here, and however wonderful it may appear, silliness is the daughter of wit. Therefore, it is not a paradox to say that the French would be wiser if they were less witty. The gods worshipped here, although no altars are raised for them, are novelty and fashion. Let a man run, and everybody will run after him. The crowd will not stop unless the man is proved to be mad. But to prove it is indeed a difficult task, because we have a crowd of men who, mad from their birth, are still considered wise. The snuff of the civet cat is but one example of the facility with which the crowd can be attracted to one particular spot. The king was one day hunting and found himself at the Nuali Bridge. Being thirsty, he wanted a glass of ratafia. He stopped at the door of a drinking booth, and by the most lucky chance the poor keeper of the place happened to have a bottle of that liqueur. The king, after he had drunk a small glass, fancied a second one and said that he had never tasted such a delicious ratafia in his life. 
That was enough to give the Ratafia of the good man of Nueli the reputation of being the best in Europe. The king had said so. The consequence was that the most brilliant society frequented the tavern of the delighted publican, who is now a very wealthy man, and has built on the very spot a splendid house on which can be read the following rather comic motto, Ex liquidus solidum, which certainly came out of the head of one of the forty immortals, which gods must worthy tavern keeper worship, silliness, frivolity, and mirth. It seems to me, I replied, that such approval, such ratification of the opinion expressed by the king, the princes of the blood, etc., is rather a proof of the affection felt for them by the nation, for the French carry that affection to such an extent that they believe them infallible. It is certain that everything here causes foreigners to believe that the French people adore the king, but all thinking men here know well enough that there is more show than reality in that adoration, and the court has no confidence in it. When the king comes to Paris, everybody calls out, Vive le Roy! Because some idiot fellow begins, or because some policeman has given the signal from the midst of the crowd, but it is really a cry which has no importance, a cry given out of cheerfulness, sometimes out of fear, and which the king himself does not accept as gospel. He does not feel comfortable in Paris and prefers being in Versailles, surrounded by 25,000 men who protect him against the fury of that same people of Paris who, if ever they became wiser, might very well one day call out, Death to the king! instead of long life to the king. Louis the Fourteenth was well aware of it, and several councillors of the upper chamber lost their lives for having advised the assembling of the states general in order to find some remedy for the misfortunes of the country. France never had any love for any kings, with the exception of Saint Louis, of Louis the Twelfth, and, of course, the great and good Henry the Fourth. And even in the last case, the love of the nation was not sufficient to defend the king against the dagger of the Jesuits, an accursed race, the enemy of nations as well as of kings. The present king, who is weak and entirely led by his ministers, said candidly at the time he was just recovering from an illness, I am surprised at the rejoicings of the people in consequence of my health being restored, for I cannot imagine why they should love me so dearly. Many kings might repeat the same words, at least if love is to be measured according to the amount of good actually done. That candid remark of Louis the Fifteenth has been highly praised, but some philosopher of the court ought to have informed him that he was so much loved because he had been surnamed Le Bien-Ami. Surname or nickname. But are there any philosophers at the court of France? No. For philosophers and courtiers are as widely different as light and darkness, but there are some men of intelligence who champ the bit from motives of ambition and interest. As we were conversing, Monsieur Patou, which was the name of my new acquaintance, escorted me as far as the door of Sylvia's house. He congratulated me upon being one of her friends, and we parted company. I found the amiable actress in good company, she introduced me to all her guests and gave me some particulars respecting every one of them. The name of Crebillon, 
struck my ear. What, sir, I said to him, am I fortunate enough to see you? For eight years you have charmed me. For eight years I have longed to know you. Listen, I beg of you. I then recited the finest passage of his Zenobie et Radamiste, which I had translated into blank verse. Sylvia was delighted to see the pleasure enjoyed by Crebillon in hearing, at the age of eighty, his own lines in a language which he knew thoroughly and loved as much as his own. He himself recited the same passage in French, and politely pointed out the parts in which he thought that I had improved on the original. I thanked him, but I was not deceived by his compliment. We sat down to supper, and, being asked what I had already seen in Paris, I related everything I had done, omitting only the conversation with Patou. After I had spoken for a long time, Crebillon, who had evidently observed better than anyone else the road I had chosen in order to learn the good as well as the bad qualities by his countrymen, said to me, For the first day, sir, I think that what you have done gives great hopes of you, and without any doubt you will make rapid progress. You tell your story well, and you speak French in such a way as to be perfectly understood. Yet all you say is only Italian, dressed in French. That is a novelty which causes you to be listened to with interest, and which captivates the attention of your audience. I must even add that your Franco-Italian language is just the thing to enlist in your favor the sympathy of those who listen to you, because it is singular, new, and because you are in a country where everybody worships those two divinities, novelty and singularity. Nevertheless, you must begin tomorrow and apply yourself in good earnest in order to acquire a thorough knowledge of our language, for the same persons who warmly applaud you now will, in two or three months, laugh at you. I believe it, sir, and that is what I fear. Therefore, the principal object of my visit here is to devote myself entirely to the study of the French language. But, sir, how shall I find a teacher? I am a very unpleasant pupil, always asking questions, curious, troublesome, insatiable, and even supposing that I could meet with the teacher I require. I am afraid I am not rich enough to pay him. For fifty years, sir, I have been looking out for a pupil such as you have just described yourself, and I would willingly pay you myself if you would come to my house and receive my lessons. I reside in the Marais Rue de Duzport. I have the best Italian poets. I will make you translate them into French, and you need not be afraid of my finding you insatiable. I accepted with joy. I did not know how to express my gratitude, but both his offer and the few words of my answer bore the stamp of truth and frankness. Crebillon was a giant. He was six feet high and three inches taller than I. He had a good appetite, could tell a good story without laughing, was celebrated for his witty repartees and his sociable manners, 
but he spent his life at home, seldom going out and seeing hardly anyone, because he always had a pipe in his mouth and was surrounded by at least twenty cats with which he would amuse himself all day. He had an old housekeeper, a cook, and a manservant. His housekeeper had the management of everything. She never allowed him to be in need of anything, and she gave no account of his money, which she kept altogether, because he never asked her to render any accounts. The expression of Kerbion's face was that of the lion's, or of the cat's, which is the same thing. He was one of the royal censors, and he told me that it was an amusement for him. His housekeeper was in the habit of reading him the works brought for his examination, and she would stop reading when she came to a passage which, in her opinion, deserved his censure. But sometimes they were of a different opinion, and then their discussions were truly amusing. I once heard the housekeeper send away an author with these words. "'Come again next week. We have had no time to examine your manuscript.'" End of chapter 6, part 1. Recording by Heather Jane Hogan.